On March 25th, the church celebrates the Feast of the Annunciation, the angel Gabriel coming to Mary, announcing to her that she's going to have a child. Mary says her yes, her fiat, and she conceives then the child Jesus. Nine months later, it is December 25th, the Feast of Christmas, and of course we see Jesus is born at that point. Those two mysteries, they're called the Incarnation. In the Creed, we say, and by the Holy Spirit was incarnate of the Virgin Mary and became man, referring to Jesus. The word incarnation comes from a few Latin words, which means to come in the flesh. You think of um, carn, excuse me, um, I forget the name of the food, but it's something carne. It means like there's meat in the food, uh, there's flesh in the food. Today, we celebrate the Feast of the Ascension. It's sort of the reverse of what takes place at uh, Christmas Day and at the Annunciation. On the Annunciation and on Christmas Day, God comes to humanity. God becomes one of us. But today, on this Feast of the Ascension, what takes place is humanity, man is brought to God. Christmas, God comes to us. Today, we celebrate humanity going to God. Jesus takes our humanity our flesh, our bones, our blood, and he brings it to heaven. So right now, as I'm talking to you, there's, there's already a human being in heaven, Jesus Christ. There's others as well, of course, we know that Mary assumed into heaven, and she's also there in her resurrected body. Before Jesus ascended into heaven, he, he said a number of things to the apostles. In today's gospel reading, we hear uh, these few last words that he gives. So the eleven disciples are there with him, and Jesus comes to them, they worship him, and then Jesus says to them, all power in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That's, that's very key, remember? It's all power in heaven and on earth has been given to the human being, Jesus Christ, whose person is divine. At the end of our After the Hour Father during Mass, we'll say that the phrase, for the kingdom and the power and the glory are yours now and forever, Referring to God, that God's is the kingdom, his is the power, and his is the glory. Not any ruler on this earth. It came about in the early church when the emperor was claiming to have the kingdom, the power, and the glory. And the early church said, no, that belongs to God. So here when Jesus says this, all power in heaven and on earth has been given to me, he's referring to his humanity. That God has given to Jesus' humanity the power over heaven and earth. And then he takes that power, which he has, that authority, and he says to the apostles, go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. It's the commandment that we hear at the end of Mass. Go forth the Mass, as in it, go in peace. Go and announce the gospel of the, war, of, the, of the Lord. We're to go and spread the gospel. We're to make disciples of all nations. Here the apostles have been given this commandment. And how do they do that? They baptize. They do it by baptism. The word baptism literally means this washing, whether it's immersion or the pouring, over, uh, pouring of water over a person. So they're to baptize them, the people that they're making disciples, that they're making students. And they're to baptize them with these words in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, the Trinity. Two weeks from now we're going to celebrate the Feast of the Trinity that God is, is one God, but he's three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They're to baptize in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. 
That's what makes us Christians. That's what incorporates us into the body of Christ is by, is by baptism. There are some so-called, there are groups that call themselves Christian today that do not baptize with these words. Uh, for example, the Jehovah's Witnesses, they don't baptize saying any words at all. They just submerge the person into water. Uh, some Pentecostals, particularly the Apostolic Pentecostals, they baptize in the name of Jesus. They don't use these words. But Jesus commands the church to use these words in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit. And then Jesus continues and he says, teaching them, teaching the, the, the disciples, teaching the students, to observe all that I have commanded you. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Not some things, not almost all the things that I commanded you, but all that I have commanded you. It's one of the beautiful things about being Catholic is that the, the church teaches us everything that Jesus taught. Some things are hard, some things we don't like. All of us can find out, you know, say, you know what, I don't really care for this particular teaching in the Catholic Church. Or, and then we go off and we join some church that matches our own idea of what we want the church to look like. There's been maybe 40-some thousand cases like that today. Uh, according to the statistics of how many so-called churches that are out there. But teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. That can be difficult, folks, particularly when, when it comes to uh, you know, morality, when it comes to, uh, to sexuality, when it comes to you know, all the Ten Commandments that Jesus gives, that, that sometimes it's difficult to follow them. But just because we don't care to follow them or because we want to do our own will on this earth, it doesn't mean that we should go off and, and do our own thing. Rather, we should pray for the grace to do God's will, which we do in the Our Father. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We don't say my will be done. We want God's will to be done here. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And then Jesus says this rather strange phrase that we're going to hear again later in Mass, right before communion. He says, And behold, I am with you always until the end of the age. And behold, I am with you always until the end of the age. If you've read my bulletin article, I explain this a little bit. If you haven't yet, uh, be sure to pick up a bulletin and read it. Anyway, in it I mentioned, I said, Imagine that you're a, that you're, you know, a young child. Your dad and mom are going to be on a trip for a week. They say that your older siblings are going to be taking care of you. And then right before they leave, they say, hey, oh, and by the way, we're never going to leave you. We're going to be with you always until we get back. Every child would be like, that doesn't even make sense. You're leaving. How are you staying with us? That, that's what I've always thought, you know, was going on here with the ascension. So Jesus ascends to the, into heaven, to the right hand of the Father. And then he says, and behold, I am with you always until the end of the age. Like, okay, what's going on here? What's, what's happening? But then we just read what he said earlier. That you're to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Paul, in one of his letters, explains what takes place there in those words. When we're baptized, we become a child of God, but not just a child of God. Jesus is living within us. Our, vein, our veins run with Jesus' blood. That we're never alone. 
when you're out driving in the tractor, when you're driving down the road, when you're at work, wherever you might be, you may feel loneliness, but know that you're never alone. Know that, that God is always with you. As I mentioned last night in the homily, I said, if you've been married 45 years and you're still feeling lonely, <laughs> know that you're not alone. You're not alone. That Jesus lives within us. And all we have to do is to find that place, that place where he lives in our soul. So yes, Jesus ascends, but he doesn't. Or he, he ascends, but he stays with us. It's both and. He can do both as God. Lastly, I want to mention this. So, so when Jesus appears to them at, at, at this time, when the eleven disciples see Jesus, it says, when they saw him, they worshipped. They worshipped him. I don't think in our culture we understand what worship is anymore. For, for most Christians, particularly mainline Christianity in, our, in, our, in the United States, worship means singing a song. You hear the phrase praise and worship? You know, it usually means you know, you're singing a song. If you have ever attended you know, a mega church or, or um, some of the, particularly the, the Assembly of God churches, but even others, because a lot of churches now are going in that direction of the Assemblies of God, uh, you'll hear the, the church leader or the pastor say, okay, now let us worship God, and then they sing a song. Uh, worshiping God is so much more than singing a song. Singing a song can be worshiping God, but that's not the only way. Truthfully, worshiping God is twofold. It's in our hearts. We have a heart that, that says, God, you are worth more than anything else in the world. You're my creator. I'm the creature. You are the most holy one. I'm not fully holy. Your worth-ship, I worship you. And then there's the physical side of it. That's the spiritual side that we say in our heart. Then the physical side is where we do some action with our body in worship. I love being Catholic because the Catholic Church really brings into, you know, we, we talk about, you know, the smells of the church, you know, the bells, all the things. Like we take our bodies and we put our bodies into what we're doing. If we have grown up Catholic, we kind of go through the emotions and we don't think much about it anymore. But when you think about what we do at Mass, you know, we, we come on in and we genuflect. We worship God before we even get into our pews. We go on to our knees. And then during the most holy part of the Mass, what do we do? We go on our knees. We kneel for the consecration where God comes to our, comes to our altar. During the Creed on March 25th and on December 25th, during the words of the Creed, and by the Holy Spirit was incarnate to the Virgin Mary and became man. We all kneel. The rest of the year we, we will bow. What we do with our body matters when it comes to worshiping. Today, if you attend most Protestant churches, with, a, with the exception of some Lutheran churches, some Episcopalian and some um, Anglican churches, you almost never find kneelers in the church. Nobody kneels. And for some, and for one reason, well, that kind of makes sense for them because they don't have the Blessed Sacrament. But, but for, for Catholics, we have these kneelers because we get down on our knees and we worship God who is before us in the most blessed sacrament. One of the, the things that many of you are experiencing now, some of you for the first time, is being able to kneel when you receive Holy Communion. As Deacon Dan and I come to your pews 
and give you Holy Communion. You're able to receive, you know, the Holy Eucharist on your knees in worship. Used to be, particularly in the United States, that was always the case where we had the communion rail and everybody knelt next to it. But we come and we worship God. We go on our knees in adoration. Worshiping says, I'm vulnerable, you are greater than I. For any of you who have ever wrestled or got into a fight with somebody, the position that you do not want to be if the other person is standing on their feet is you don't want to be on your knees because you're vulnerable. The person can attack you much more easily. That's, that's why we go on our knees because we make ourselves vulnerable before God. We need him. And when they saw him, they worshipped. And then Jesus gives them the authority to govern the church. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always until the end of the age. <laughs>